The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Create a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in-one platform. Use code CANHE for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I am asking all members of Congress to join me in dreaming big and bold and daring things for our country. Tuesday night, Trump addressed a joint session of Congress. His speech embraced some Republican policies, but it didn't do much to clear things up for congressional Republicans. So what does it mean for Trump's relationship with his own party and his relationship with the legislative branch? We're back with Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels, and this week we've got Bob Costa here with us. Bob is an all-star congressional reporter here at The Post, and he's really going to help us figure out whether or not Trump's relationship with Congress is in fact unusual and what it means for getting some real things done. Bob, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So, Bob, can you just briefly recap for us what we heard in the joint session address? We heard in many ways a typical speech by President Trump. It was laced with populism and nationalism. I saw the fingerprints of Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller all over this speech. But it was delivered in a different tone. So a lot of the reviews and the congressional response has been, oh, this was great because the president sounded like a president in their eyes. But let's not forget that the policies haven't changed, that the Trump policies on immigration, on trade, these are the same things we heard throughout the campaign. And he did do, uh, he, he nodded in a way to the Republican plans on the Hill on health care and on taxes, saying they're going to help him fill in the details. So it, I see it not so much as a policy speech, but as an address to Congress to say, I'm not here to totally go on a different path. Let's work together. And if you need me to have a different kind of persona to make this all work, I can do that. Do you think that Republicans in Congress responded well to that? Do you think that they're they're interested in in that kind of relationship? I think they did respond in a positive way. When you think about President Trump and his relationship with Congress, you think back to any president who's been an outsider, someone who comes in without much experience. And that, as a congressional reporter, I often think back to Jimmy Carter, who came in in 1977 to Washington, really not having the relationships in town, not knowing the Democrats in Congress, who controlled Congress at the time, and thinking he could do a lot from the Oval Office. And so what Trump's trying to navigate is a similar dynamic. He's the outsider for the Republican Party. There's a way things are done here in Washington by Republicans. And Trump's okay with some of that, but he really wants to be doing it on his own. We see that with his flair for executive authority. Uh, But now we're in March. Uh, He's had his cabinet appointees. He's had his executive orders. He's done a lot from the White House. Uh, But to really be a successful president, even as an outsider, you have to work with Congress. Yeah, and you spoke a little bit there about the historical context. And in order to find out more, I spoke with Kyle Kondik, who works with the University of Virginia Center for Politics, and he weighed in a little bit more about the historical context for this. People often cite Reagan as this example of someone who campaigned as an anti-establishment candidate. And then once he took office, he really took steps to kind of make nice with Congress. Um, He made an effort to incorporate them and to, you know, invite them over and all of those things. Have we seen that kind of behavior from Trump? 
I think that President Obama probably didn't have great personal relationships with leaders in Congress, and I don't think really that Donald Trump does either. I mean, Paul Ryan, certainly the House Speaker, has been critical of Trump uh, in the past during the campaign. Uh, I would say Mitch McConnell, uh, the Senate Majority Leader, was also to maybe a lesser extent. You know, going back to Reagan, you know, that the Republicans won control of the Senate in 1980. They did gain a lot of House seats in 1980, but the Democrats uh, still controlled the House. However, the Democrats also were almost like two parties back then in that you had a big kind of Southern conservative wing. You know, those were representatives from states that had probably voted for Reagan uh, and, uh, you know, would become Republican over time in the Deep South. But there were still a lot of uh, House and Senate members of Democrats from those places. And so those were the members who would be open to, say, voting for the big tax cuts that that, uh, Reagan did in 1981. So they got through the Democratic House, uh, even though a lot of Democrats probably didn't, you know, didn't really like those tax cuts. That's an interesting point. So because we've seen specifically Senators John McCain and Lindsey Graham really speak out against some of Trump's policies. I think that what's happening is pretty rare. And I think that sort of goes back to the campaign, too, in that, you know, normally a presidential candidate will have this sort of unified cadre of senators and House members who go across the country and speak as as surrogates on the the candidate's behalf. If you look at like Barry Goldwater in 1964, who basically ran a hopeless candidacy and was kind of an outsider candidate, you still have like Richard Nixon, who was the you know, most recent Republican nominee campaigning on Goldwater's behalf. Uh, we didn't see the kind of uh, party unity that we're used to in a presidential campaign. And I think that's sort of translating into how the first uh, month plus of the Trump White House is sort of run in that there's a lot more outward criticism from Republicans of a sitting president than maybe uh, you would otherwise see. Yeah. To that point, had we ever seen anything like the never Trump movement in history where you have a bunch of representatives, you know, who are from the Republican Party who are just very vocally against this particular candidate? Have we seen something so specific? Yeah, I think I think that I mean, the, the, there are differences, but I, I certainly think that there were a lot of uh, establishment Republicans who didn't want Goldwater to be the nominee. 1964. I think there was a lot of opposition to Jimmy Carter amongst sort of establishment Democrats in 1976. I actually think there are some interesting comparisons between Carter's um, victory in 1976 and Trump's victory in, in 2016. In fact, the, the creation of superdelegates in the Democratic nominating process, you know, those roughly 15 percent of all the delegates are party leaders who are not bound to uh, a candidate through the, the primary process. Those were create those superdelegates were created in the 1980s in part as a way to prevent candidates like Jimmy Carter and George McGovern Um, from winning uh, the nomination. So can you think of any examples in history when the makeup of Congress really determined something major? I think what happens is is the the American public typically votes against the president's party in the midterm election. And sometimes that's in response to maybe something they don't didn't like that happened in the first two years uh, of of a of a president's uh, a president's reign or if the economy is bad or something like that. A great example is the Uh, 1994 Republican Revolution led by Newt Gingrich to take control of the House and the Senate um, from the Democrats. So Bill Clinton was elected with unified control uh, of the House and the Senate, but the public reacted uh, strongly against Clinton in 1994, partially in response to the failed attempt to reconfigure the health care system in the United States. Republicans took the House and the Senate, totally changed Bill Clinton's governing objectives. Ultimately, he ended up pursuing 
some somewhat uh, moderate to conservative policies on things like welfare reform that he worked with the Republican House and Senate on, although he also had to deal with, you know, obstructionism and also you know, impeachment over the, uh, you know, the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal. And then, you know, going further back into history, one good example, I think, of sort of a midterm stop in a president's governing power is 1938, when the Republicans didn't win the House and the Senate, but racked up huge gains in the uh, in the House and the Senate in 1938, and effectively put an end to the New Deal. Now, um, you know, World War II would would break uh, a few years later, and so FDR kind of got a second life as a president. Uh, through dealing with that crisis and became more of an internationally focused president. But the big social programs of of the New Deal, a lot of that stuff kind of halted uh, in 1938. So, Bob, how is Trump's brand of republicanism really different from that of the congressional Republicans? He starts off as a former Democrat, so his instincts are not ideological. And that's so different from House Speaker Paul Ryan from Wisconsin. I've covered Ryan for a long time, and he started his career at the knee of Jack Kemp, the former New York congressman and supply-side conservative who wanted to have free markets and cut taxes across the board. And Ryan worked at think tanks. He worked as a staffer for Jack Kemp. Then he ran for Congress at age 28. So his whole life he's been steeped in conservative politics and conservative economics. And in Trump, you have this businessman who's 70 years old, who sees the world in populist terms, who on trade is very supportive of tariffs, and he's okay with having heavy taxes on imports and exports. And so it's just a different worldview. To me, it it reminds me of a dynamic in a family where maybe your sister or your brother is getting married to someone and everyone's just trying to make it work. It's not a perfect fit. Everyone kind of knows it. But a lot of things go unsaid as everyone tries to make it work. That's what's happening right now between Congress and Trump. So what are the specific areas that have really, um, you know, where Republicans kind of disagree or there's a lot of gray area right now? There's a lot of gray area for sure when it comes to health care and taxes. On the corporate rate for tax reform, you're going to have probably general agreement. You know, it's going to go from the mid-30s to around 20 percent. For corporations, individuals, you're going to see a tax cut. The problem for Republicans is if you're going to cut taxes and you don't like deficits, you have to find some way to get revenue for the federal government. And so one proposal is this so-called border adjustment tax. And that means you tax imports that are coming in. Paul Ryan, the House Speaker, and others like the idea of a border adjustment tax as part of tax reform because it's a nod toward Trump's populism, toward trying to have some kind of tariff-style policy. Uh, but a lot of Republicans, they don't like this kind of thing, taxing more. And what, what we see from Norquist and from so many others is this idea that they're willing to compromise with their own principles in a way if they think Trump can move in their direction. Because privately, so many Republicans are saying, look, this guy doesn't speak our language on policy. He doesn't speak our language on politics. But if we can just nudge him in our direction, if we can actually get him to sign a health care bill we kind of like, if we can get him to sign a tax care plan we can all buy into – then we'll, we'll kind of suffer through the rest of the stuff that's coming out of the White House as, as long as we get the big ticket items. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Create a beautiful website or online store using Squarespace's all-in-one platform and award-winning templates. No coding required. Make your next move with Squarespace. Use code CANHE for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
We're here with Grover Norquist, the president of Americans for Tax Reform, a longtime anti-tax activist. He has watched Republican House leaders and Senate leaders for decades try to get their agendas through working with different presidents. What do you make of President Trump's, his speech, and what he can actually get done with this Congress? Is it possible to get an agenda through? Yeah, the happiest people after last night's sort of State of the Union uh, speech by Trump were the Republican leaders in the House and Senate. The Republicans in the House and Senate, up until Trump's presidency, had the challenge that they had to negotiate either with Bush or with uh, President Obama. And so their base was mad at them because they wouldn't pass certain bills, or they would pass them, but they couldn't get 60 votes in the Senate, and so they'd pass in the House but not the Senate. And somebody in Kentucky goes, what's the matter with you guys? You have the House and Senate, and you're not passing bills. You're not enacting bills. Well, there's the president. He has a veto. It takes 60 votes to pass a filibuster. We're now past both of those problems certainly for the reconciliation issue of budgets. So you have Republican House and Senate that are working together in ways that were not done before. Often something would happen in the House and it'd go over to the Senate and they'd, we'll now look at it. Grover, you know these players so well. I mean, you were part of that Republican revolution on the outside in 1994. Uh, I have your book, Rock the House, from back then. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so who's actually running the show right now in Republican Washington? Is it Speaker Ryan, Leader McConnell, President Trump? I know the obvious answer is President Trump. Congress seems to be filling in the details. Yes, and that's frankly always been the case. I mean, Congress wrote the Reagan tax bill. The Trump tax bill will be written largely by Congress, but history will remember it as the Trump tax bill. And if Trump had not remembered to win the presidency, it wouldn't have happened. It will be the Trump tax bill. It is the tax bill that passed because Trump won the election. I mean, when Trump won, it meant you had a Republican willing to sign the bills that the House and the Senate Republicans have been working on for years. They've been drafting them. They've been giving speeches on them. They've been making sure they're safe. I mean, if somebody's been out talking about something and voting on something for year after year after year, you're pretty sure it's not a fatal project line. What is the conservative movement in Washington in 2017. You're famous. You have a Wednesday morning meeting Mm -hmm. at your office. You bring together all these conservative leaders from around D.C. and Northern Virginia, and you you kind of plot ahead the Republican future, the conservative future. In Trump's Washington, is your voice as prominent as a movement? Does it matter as much? We've been working now for 20 years with the center-right meeting in D.C. About 150 to 180 people get together every Wednesday. 30 people present of the 150 or 180 uh, for three minutes each. You talk about what you're doing. Now, you might cite the president said something today, and that suggests progress on this thing that I'm working on. And that's fine. But this is not a conversation about the, the, the day's headlines. This is about headlines you intend to make in three months, six months, two years. Half of what the conservative movement cares about and is working on is happening in the 50 states right now. What about in Congress? What are, what are conservatives wanting to see from Congress in the coming months? Um, several things. Continuing to undo regulations through the Congressional Review Act. There are series the House have worked on that the Senate have not yet focused on. It is important to get more serious conservatives into government. Trump's personnel choices have been reassuring his picks uh, at the uh, FCC, Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, is exactly what a Hayekian free market conservative would want there. The people they're looking at at the FTC, uh, Federal Trade Commission, are also pro-competition economists and, and, and regulators. It's the president gave his speech, his first address to Congress. 
Republicans seem pretty happy. The change in tone, not into Republican policies. Conservatives like yourself seem pretty pleased with the way this is all going. How long can this peace last? We get Obamacare undone and move towards a consumer-centric health care policy. Huge step forward. We block grant Medicaid, which opens the door to block granting other entitlements. We get the significant tax cut, which will give us the growth we need to make America not grumpy. With that wind at your back and the deregulation that, that Trump wants, the other thing he campaigned on was that the Iraq occupation was a mistake and we're not doing that again and we're not starting any unnecessary wars. Okay? Avoiding wars, I mean, think how successful the Bush presidency, Bush 43's presidency might have been if after knocking off Saddam Hussein, they'd left some guy in charge and just left. And so so avoid wars, pass Republican conservative plans on some of these key domestic policies, and things will be all right between Republicans in Congress and the White House. I think on the big ticket items, remember, Trump has also been more radical, perhaps in the House and Senate, on the issue of school choice. I think people understate what a big deal that is. The amount of federal programs and state programs that could be block granted to parents, not to states or cities, but to parents and to children, dramatically changes the power of the teachers unions will lose power and parents will get freed up and lousy schools will be emptied out and successful schools will be created. Education K through 12 is something like 6% of GDP. The way you talk about him, Grover, it's almost like he's a right-wing president, not a populist or nationalist. Well, on these issues, he is completely in sync on on issues of on the tax policy issue, on reforming health care, on block granting Medicaid, on school choice. These are post-Reagan, Reaganite reforms. They were the obvious next step for a Reagan Republican Republican Party to take on. One thing that I've heard a lot of people ask is basically Republicans have control of, you know, both branches of government right now. Does this mean that Donald Trump has a mandate to do what he wishes? Trump does not have a mandate in the sense that he can just do what he wants. Congress is not some kind of place where they're just applauding whatever the president says. It also is a wall in the sense that Trump every day has this wall in front of him that he has to either knock down or go over if he wants to actually change the federal government. Now, he can sign executive orders. He can do a lot of things from the White House. We've seen expanded presidential authority in the past few decades. But if you want to do huge things like Trump wants to do and Steve Bannon wants to do, you have to find a way to get this Republican Party in Congress to sign off on it or else you're not going to have the funding and you're not going to have the resources you need to get your agenda complete. Now, a lot of Democrats or people who are critical of Trump are wondering why there isn't more being done to hold him to account. What about the makeup of Congress makes it difficult to, you know, have certain investigations move forward? Um, You know, why has this been a challenge? Well, if you want to investigate Trump, you have to control the committees that investigate and the Republicans control everything because they have the majority there's not an appetite to go after their own president after a first few months. And I think it's a great political lesson for people who are sitting out there saying all this stuff's happening with Russia. Well, at least we're reading articles about Trump and Russia and we're reading articles about Trump and his business. And we have all these questions. Where, where is Congress on this? Well, you better control Congress then. You have to take over Congress. You have to at least take over the House. The reason President Clinton had all the heat 
in the 90s was because Republicans controlled Congress. There's not the same kind of political capital right now in the in the Congress on the left. But I will say this. Remember, time is a, a really important factor in politics. So let's say the government funding, it comes up in a few months or the debt limit extension comes up in a couple months. And there's a problem with Republicans getting the votes to extend it. Trump's going to need Democrats to help him out. And then you'll see the Democrats have leverage. Because things aren't moving quickly on Capitol Hill right now, it seems like the Democrats are just sitting around. But once legislation starts pushing through and moving fast, you're going to see the Democrats hold up and say, hey, if you really want some of us to come over the line on this, you're going to have to give us X and Y. You mentioned there Senators Schumer and Warren, and we know that Trump has repeatedly called uh, Senator Warren Pocahontas, making fun of her you know, uh, Native American heritage. And also, I believe he referred to Chuck Schumer as a clown. What are some really outrageous things that we've seen go on between the executive branch and Congress thus far? Well, we've seen the Republicans grin and bear it. I mean, watching some of their facial expressions during the speech was just so telling. I mean, they're just sitting there saying, we're just going to try to make this work. And the Democrats were stone-faced. They, some of them were white on the House floor, trying to show solidarity with the, with the protesters, with themselves. We've seen Trump. He says he's a, he's a relationships guy. And what I mean by that is, in business, if you read about Trump, if you get to know Trump, you realize he does not have ex- huge depth when it comes to policy details. He's someone who's a transactional person who really goes by his gut instinct and looks at relationships as the webbing that supports him in business or in politics. Uh, but for someone who's so focused on relationships, he has not built a rapport yet with Senator Schumer or with Leader Pelosi on the Democratic side. And his relationships with Ryan and McConnell, I, I would not define them as chummy. Uh, they're, they're coming to the White House frequently now, Ryan and McConnell, and they're working with the White House staff. Uh, but Trump doesn't see in Ryan and McConnell total allies. He's still a little wary of them, I'm told, from people within the White House. He wants to work with them, but he thinks they do have their own agendas. And it's true, they do. Uh, And they have their own priorities. Uh, And this is something every president confronts. Do presidents typically like invite members of Congress over with some frequency to have conversations with them? Is that common? They do. It depends on the president. I mean, it's a cliche almost now in politics. Reagan and Tip O'Neill, everyone talks about that. But Bill Clinton liked having people over. He was a real people person. Jimmy Carter didn't. Jimmy Carter, uh, one of my favorite stories from history is people used to say to President Carter, have Tip O'Neill over, have other senators over. Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House to play tennis. And Carter just didn't really want to play tennis with these people. And we saw that with President Obama as well. President Obama was a deal maker and he he worked with Congress, but he didn't like to have the relationships where they'd be hanging out in the White House. I've been really trying to watch Trump's trips to Mar-a-Lago. When's he going to start bringing down members of Congress to Mar-a-Lago? We've seen him more and more hang out with his friends. And that's the thing to watch about President Trump. It's not so much about building relationships with Congress. He likes to build relationships with this wide world of people, friends, business associates, family members, friends of family who populate his whole world and not just the White House and the political world. And that's how he gets feedback and makes decisions. Does he thrive on, does does Trump, does President Trump thrive on the idea of contention? You know, does it hurt him in the end to have all of these points of contention potentially with, with Republicans in his own party? Or does he kind of thrive on it? You know, Steve Bannon seems to be somebody who really kind of thrives on contention. Uh, Does he? Trump loves drama. He loves tension. So this idea that the the speech was toned down Trump, sure, it was for now. 
and we'll see if it lasts. Because Trump really never stays in that, that state of mind too long. He's a fighter. He one time told me just how much he loves to fight, and not physically, I think, but about how much he just <laughs> likes to fight in general. And, and I've seen this behind the scenes, whether it's talking about a movie or sports or a television host. He just has – he's an opinionated person who's reacting to everything that's in front of him. And I think that the, that side of his personality is not going away. So if something irks him or he's watching TV in the White House at 11 o'clock at night on CNN, he'll react. Uh, but that doesn't mean the congressional agenda is going to fall through. And so that's what I hear the House leaders are telling members. They're saying, just don't worry about the distractions. We're on this train that's moving slowly on policy, and it's going to keep moving. There are going to be all these things along the way. But just remember the train's moving. Stay steady. But what sort of wins out to the public? Does the public see those policy changes and, you know, appreciate those things? Or are they distracted by some of Trump's behavior? That's the open question. I think the public, when I've been reporting out in the field in the last few months, some of them see Trump as kind of a traditional conservative Republican who's doing Republican things. Others see this populist nationalist who's upending the political order and changing the way the world works. And some of them think that's fantastic. Others see this as really authoritarian in its in its whole presentation and a threat to our entire democracy it's i think it's probably going to be a mix because trump in a way is embracing he's not he's not embracing he's um he's moving in a militaristic direction he has a cabinet full of generals he's increasing the military budget and so that gives some people pause uh, about just the kind of president he is uh, he speaks in a very hardline way about Islam and about the threats in the Middle East. But at the same time, on domestic policy, he, he has Congress in front of him saying, we're going to control most of this. Go with us. Uh, but I think the ban inside of Trump can never be underestimated. At the core of this presidency, regardless of what Paul Ryan and Leader McConnell want, is a president who is bought in to the idea that he can be a disruptor in the world. And Bannon has connected Trump in his own mind in, in conversations with Le Pen in France and B Nigel Farage in Great Britain. And they, he sees Trump as part of this disruptive force against globalization. And sometimes when I say this kind of stuff out loud, stuff I've reported on about Bannon, it's almost like we're in some kind of dorm room talking in grandiose terms. But it's very powerful and very real. And that's why I don't laugh at it because this change in the country and in the world regardless of his tweets and the way he, he warms up to Republicans, is still something that's stark, populist, and startling that's happening right in front of us. Well, on that note, we're going to bring it to the final question here, which is, can Trump be a successful president without unified support from his party in Congress? Uh, can he do this? We've seen him really act on his own so far. And you have a president in Trump who really believes in business, he was always an alone figure. He was a man atop his own organization in his own tower. Uh, not, not many friends, a wide network of associates, but really operating on his own. And he's never really, in, in 70 years of life, he has never been in a collaborative atmosphere like he has to have with Congress. And, and he hasn't taken to Congress like I think a lot of people thought, this art of the deal, this deal maker they thought would dive in. And for now, he wants to use his own leverage, his instincts to get things done. So this is a presidency that's being defined day to day, that's 
driven by some of these deeper themes of populism and Bannonism, as I like to call it. But it's still something he, he's learning the job in a way to, to how to work this town, how to speak to this town, whether it's inside the room of Congress. One of the White House officials told me it was an inside voice, an inside voice. And, and, and so Trump hasn't changed. They, they make sure to say he's the same man, the same policies, uh, but he's changing the way he talks to Washington. And I guess that's a change. That's some progress for Trump. Bob, your analysis is always so critical. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You guys should follow Bob on Twitter at Costa Reports. That's C-O-S-T-A Reports. Bob is a great reporter who's so well-sourced in Washington. He has great analysis and great insight, and you won't regret it. Or you can follow me, Allison Mikes, at Allison Mikes. That's M-I-C-H-S. And there I keep you updated on all of the things that we can't cover in this podcast. And meanwhile, when you're on Twitter, just turn right over to the podcast app and leave us a five-star review. I promise you're going to love it. It's going to be so fun. And then share this. Share it with everyone you know. Tell them how much you like it. We will keep making you great episodes as long as you guys keep listening. Thank you so much. Can He Do That is put together by a great team here at The Post. First and foremost is Carol Alderman, our producer. And we also have additional production help this week from Bridget Reed Morosky. Rachel Orr is our amazing design director. And our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio. 